perhaps you've heard this question asked before. Do you have any last words? Heard that question? If you, uh, you know, maybe you've seen it in a movie or a TV show uh, or read it in a book, uh, that question uh, is, is not a great question to be asked. If you are asked that question in a movie or a TV show or a book, it's because your life is about to end. Uh, and then there's, there's that moment where the character in the movie, the TV show, the book, or whatever it is, is given the opportunity to say one more thing. Have you ever thought about what your last words would be? If you could say one more thing, what would that one more thing be? Uh, there's a lot of pressure, I think. When I started thinking about this, if I had one more thing to say, what is it that I would say? Because I feel a little bit of pressure to make sure that the statement that I make is definitive in some way, that it sort of wraps up both uh, my entire life and everything I want people to know or remember in the future. Uh, but I did a Google search this week about uh, the famous last words, last words that people said. So, for example, uh, Humphrey Bogart. His last words, now this is all, um, this is reported, but whether this is all totally true, I'm not sure. So his reported last words were, I never should have switched from scotch to martinis. That was, that was his last thought. Uh, Joe DiMaggio uh, supposedly said, I finally get to go see Marilyn. Oh, so sweet. Joan Crawford who uh, maybe some of you have seen uh, or watched the, the miniseries theme that came out recently. Um, her housekeeper, she had a heart attack, and her housekeeper started praying for her. And so Joan Crawford, her last words were, uh, don't you dare ask God to help me. Yeah. Uh, Bob Hope, he was asked by his wife where he wanted to be buried. And so his last words were, surprise me. Winston Churchill, his last words were, oh, I'm so bored with it all. And then he died. Uh, the poet Dylan Thomas, uh, his last words were, I've had 18 straight whiskeys. I think that's the record. And he died of, I'm sure you all guessed it, pneumonia. <laughs> uh, Charlie Chaplin, when, when he died, he, a priest asked him, or, or, you know, was giving him his last rites and said, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. And Charlie Chaplin said, well, why not? After all, it belongs to him. Last words may be silly. Uh, last words may be forgotten. But then in some cases, last words can really matter. But the truth is that most of us don't really have an opportunity to plan out our last words. But about four years ago, I found myself entering into a very, very deep depression. And it was about this time of year, four years ago, where things started to sort of go more and more downhill for me. And as the year progressed, uh, my depression got worse and worse and worse. Um, I took about three months off of work. Uh, I wasn't able to eat anything. Uh, because of my depression, like I, I literally could not eat half a sandwich. I couldn't finish it. Uh, and I lost uh, about 40 pounds in six weeks. I was very, very sick. But besides just those physical parts of it, with my uh, depression, I couldn't pray. 
I didn't know where God was. I didn't know who I was. I, I didn't know if I had made decisions in my life because I had wanted to make them or if someone else wanted me to make those decisions. I would talk to people about what was going on with me and just try to explain. They would ask me, well, what are you going to do? And I would say, I don't know. Well, what about your job? I don't know. Well, what about your family? I don't know. That was my answer to almost every question for a while. And so at some point in the fall of 2014, I decided that I didn't want to be here anymore. And uh, so I got into bed that night before Nisha came in to join me and I had this, this notepad and I, so I grabbed the notepad and a pen and I sat down to write a goodbye letter to Zeke and Jed. So Zeke at the time would have been uh, seven and Jed would have been three. And I sat there and I, I, I stared at the page and there were a lot of things I wanted to say but I wasn't really sure, I, I wasn't really sure how to say it or how to put it on this page. And so I, I told them that I loved them. I, I told them how, how sorry I was um, for being such a miserable person. I, I told them that they would be really better off without me. And I promised them that life would get better once I wasn't there anymore. And I got about halfway down the page um, and I stopped and looked at it. And these were going to be my last words. And to be totally truthful with you, I, I didn't really like them. I, I didn't like these last words. And I felt weak and broken. I felt pathetic. I felt like there was just nothing left of me to put down on this page or to give to anyone else. But that was who I was. And though no one else knew it, that's what I accepted about myself. That there was nothing left. And so those were the last words that I wrote down that I was going to give to my children. I love you. I'm sorry. You're better off. Jesus spoke some last words. Those words as he hung on the cross where it is finished. His body was broken, he was bloody, and he was so, so tired. And all that he had accomplished, all the words he had spoken, all the lives he had touched, those he had healed, all of it came to a heartbreaking end with those three words, it is finished. And I have to imagine that those three words reverberated throughout the lives of everyone who had followed him, heard about him, believed in him. There is something so final about those three words. It is finished. It is over. It is done. They are words that those around him could really only understand in one way as they stare at him dying in front of them. There's no other way for them to understand it. His life was finished. He was dead. It was all over. The dream was gone. This is a moment that no one comes back from, you see. Death in this gory, glorified, and public forum is the end. There is no reversing it. There is no undoing it. It is the final straw. 
And with those words, all those who had followed and called themselves his disciples felt their worlds crashing in around them. I mean, it's telling that none of his followers are actually there. Are they afraid for their lives? Perhaps. Are they scared of what all this means? Yes. Do they not know what to do anymore? For sure. All that they had done, all that they had given up, was for nothing. Their future, their Lord, was taken away from them and they ran away to begin to try to pick up the shattered pieces of their lives. There are moments in life that feel this way. It is finished. It is over. It is done. And that was the place where I found myself when I sat down to write that letter. I couldn't imagine what I had to go on for. My depression had convinced me that I was washed out, that I was fading slowly into the background, and that I didn't matter anymore to the world or to my God. And I felt the pull so strongly, this pull toward despair, this pull toward not having any answers, but furthermore, this utter helplessness, which is so hard to explain, but this utter helplessness where you see so clearly what's wrong, but you don't know what to do about it. And you don't feel like there is anything you can do about it. And you know that there's no magic formula. That no one can step in and make everything okay. As much as you would love for them to, and as much as they would love to. There is no magic button. When those words come into the back of your mind, it is finished. The gospel story of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection is a story that is told with great purpose and gravity. It's a story that is meant to be taken as a whole, each part contributing to the next, showing us the love, planning, and purposes of God as revealed in the life of his son Jesus. And as we look at the life of Jesus, we should be humbled by the words that Jesus spoke and convicted to the core by the challenges that he laid out in front of us. If we honestly read the words of Jesus and apply them to ourselves, it cuts right through who we are or who we pretend to be and demands that we become something else. We should be awed by the amazing things that Jesus did in the name of his Father. And we should be shocked and appalled by the way humanity responded to the Son of God. How they treated him, how they reject him. And we, as we come to the cross, should be left broken by this scene of horror where the Son of God was taken through the streets, where He was beaten, where He was put on public display, where He was killed. This man who came from God to love the world. And we need to live in all of these moments because the story is building. And while everyone reads the story and all those who stand around look at the story, when they hear those words, it is finished, they think the story is over. You know why? Because it feels over. 
It feels over. It feels like the end. And if those three words hang in the air, they would echo throughout eternity. It is finished. But there are three more words that are introduced to the story. As final as those words seem, they're not the last words. As much as it seems like the story has come to a close, we have not read the last chapter because there are three more words that will eclipse it is finished so completely that we will forget those words were ever spoken. They will have no more meaning once three, these three words are said out loud. He is risen. He is risen. And then those words that seem to have so much power and influence, that seem to suck the life out of everything that is, those three words don't matter anymore. Because they weren't true. Not in the way we thought they were. It wasn't the end of the story. Because these three words needed to be spoken. He is risen. From John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Here's one of the reasons why I love this account. 
Jesus had told his followers everything that was going to happen. He described to them in detail, we are going to go into the city, I am going to be arrested, I am going to be beaten, I am going to be crucified, and on the third day I will rise again. He had said this to them multiple times. And guess what happens? They go into the city, Jesus is arrested, he is beaten and tortured, he is taken to the cross, and he does die. And those words, it is finished, rings out inside their hearts. And so they go to the tomb to visit the dead body of Jesus. And when they get there to see what is going on, they find that the stone is rolled away and the body is not there. And they immediately think, what? Somebody took his body. And so they mourn not only the loss of Jesus, but now they don't even have his body left. And they go away not understanding what has gone on. And then Mary sees Jesus and doesn't know it's Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is dead. And this gardener is alive. And so she starts talking to him and then finally her eyes are open and she sees who he is. And it is in this moment, this place of fear and doubt, that these words that we know rewrites the story vibrate throughout time. He is risen. And with this realization that yes, Jesus died, but through the power of God, he lives again, the end of the story is not written. The story is not over. The story has just started. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus as Christians, not just on Easter, but on other days as well. And we talk about how the resurrection gives our lives purpose and meaning. Paul says that if the resurrection isn't real, then we are to be pitied among, above everyone else. Because the resurrection is such a defining event in our lives that it needs to be true. It has to be true. We need the resurrection, but what does the power of the resurrection look like in a life? Why does it matter in such a way? Well, we have to look at this one amazing thing first. Through the resurrection, God does something amazing. He makes this dramatic statement about his ability to save and restore us. Jesus was killed on what? A cross. How many of you have some piece of jewelry or a tattoo or a Bible cover or something with a cross on it? Just raise your hand real quick. Okay? When we look at the cross, what do we see? It's a symbol of what? Of hope? Of death, sure. But of the love of God. Here's what's amazing. I want you to consider this for a second. The cross was the worst way that man had come up to, with to kill someone else. It was designed to be days upon days of torture. And the way that you actually died on the cross was you suffocated. You suffocated because you had been there so long that the, uh, the upper body muscles could not hold you up, and the lower you shrank, your lungs collapsed on each other. 
and you weren't able to actually bring oxygen into your lungs. So you were actually meant to hang there for two, three, four days, at least, before you died. The cross is awful. It is something that was a symbol that Rome used to keep everyone in place, to make them afraid of what Rome could do from them. It's a symbol of cruelty, of hatred, of the worst kind of death. But God, through the empty tomb, changes what the cross is. And I don't know if you can fully understand what that means. And I've mentioned this to you before. It's been a couple years, but let me say it again. There is a symbol in our culture today that will never be redeemed. And it's a swastika. Because when you look at that image, you see hate, you see death, you see murder. There's no way that that image can be redeemed. But here's what I want you to understand. The redemption of the image of the cross would be like God redeeming the swastika. To where when you looked at it, you saw hope and love and grace and peace. God took the worst symbol of the time and turned it into something that that represented his love. And that is a miracle for us. Because it tells us something about what God is doing through the cross and the empty tomb. And that is this. God takes the worst thing we have and redeems it. He changes it into something else. He, it's no longer bad. It is good. It is hope and love and meaning. And that is what God does. And this is an important message to everyone who feels lost in their own failures and mistakes. Those who just can't seem to get over the bad that they have done and cannot understand how God would love them. The message of the cross and the resurrection is God redeems even what is the worst part of us. And he is more than capable of doing so. Amen? Amen. God redeems what is the worst part of us and he is more than capable of doing so. When you begin to understand the resurrection in this way, it changes the way that you look at your life. This means that whatever direction you were traveling in before you understood the resurrection, the direction changed. Whatever path you were on is forever changed by the knowledge of the risen Lord. All the disciples of Jesus would have chosen for things to go back to normal. They would have loved for Jesus to have never gone through the arrest, the beating, the death. They'd have loved for him to just come back so they could just keep traveling and and become these people of influence that they wanted to be. But God had a different plan because you see, God didn't want things to go back to the way that they were before. He didn't want things to go back to the way they were before the cross and the empty tomb. Because the cross and the empty tomb changed everything. It changed what the whole story was about. And the same thing is true with us. We would love for God to come into our lives and to make things easier for us, to come in and fix all of our problems, to make all of the bad go away. And sometimes we get so angry with God because he doesn't do that. Because he doesn't fix everything. But that is not the message of the cross and the resurrection. The resurrection has never been about making everything ideal or making things easy for us. 
Jesus took the difficult journey from life to death and back again, and he did this not so that we could live the same kind of life we lived before, but so that we could live a new life where the sin that keeps us down no longer has a hold over us, where we are free from sin, from failure, and all that would keep us from God. The resurrection was all about rewriting the end of the story and giving us new last words. He is risen. And this is why the resurrection changed my life. After being a Christian for 35 years, being in ministry for 15 years, I had lost myself. And I didn't know who I was. And all I knew that I was a horrible failure. That everyone, this person that everyone thought I was, that they were wrong. And I had spent so much time and energy in my life trying to be good and perfect and to not let anyone down that I was just so tired. And I didn't want to be here anymore. But I'm here today. Now, you might think or want to think that I'm here today because God came in and fixed everything for me. That God made it so that I became happier, so that I wasn't depressed anymore, that all the things I was worrying about went away, that I stopped caring about what people think, that I found all my satisfaction in God alone, and that all that happened at once. From the time I wrote that note, it took three months before I was able to go back to church again. And it took another four weeks before I was ready to preach again. But when I spoke up, when I got up and I was ready to preach again, you know what the most amazing thing was? I had something to say. And do you know what I had to say? I had to say, you know, I'm still a terrible person. I still have all kinds of flaws and mistakes. I still have days where I don't want to do anything. I still fail as a husband and I fail as a father. I'm still going to do a lot of things wrong. And I'm going to fail you as a church in one way or another, I'm going to let someone down. I'm going to disappoint someone. I am going to fall short. But he is risen. And because Jesus Christ is risen, I don't have to be that person. I just don't. I can be instead someone who is terribly flawed and given life through Jesus Christ. That, church, is what the resurrection looks like in someone's life. And that is what changes who we are. It is why we strive to become better people. 
Not because we have to be or because God tells us we have to be, but because God loves me as this wreck that I am. And he wants me to live a better life than I live. He doesn't want me to live pre-cross and tomb. He wants me to live post-cross and tomb. As Paul writes, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as much as my failure drew me toward death, the death or resurrection of Jesus catapulted me into life. And I would not be standing in front of you today if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus. So the end of my story is different than it could have been. Instead of those words I wrote down on that page that highlighted all my failure, there are new words. There's a peace I've come to know. Though my heart and flesh may fail, there's an anchor for my soul. I can say it as well. There's a day that's drawing near when this darkness breaks to light and the shadows disappear and my faith shall be my eyes because Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He is risen from the dead and I will rise when he calls my name. No more sorrow. No more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings before my God and I will fall on my knees and rise. I will rise. He is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the message of Jesus, for the life that he lived, for the sacrifice of his death. But God, we are so grateful for his resurrection, which changes the entire story, which takes what should have been a story of defeat and changes it into a story of victory, which takes what should have been our loss and our inability and says we have life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, may we be those people who know, yes, we are failures, but we are given life through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. If you want, uh, need prayers or any sort of encouragement this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.